This is a special notice to all our lovely listeners out there. We are currently updating our records. Please could you contact Diane de Jersey on 078 88-5-4-582, that's 07899-854-582, to confirm your latest contact information, even if it has not changed. We wouldn't want you to miss out on any of our future recordings, and we look forward to hearing from you soon. Hello, this is Mary welcoming you to the 2,359th edition of the Enfield Talking newspaper, dateline 21st of September 2023. The readers this week are Joel, Mary and Bill, with Hass and Karis on the controls. Editing, production and distribution is by the team. Our title music is Country Rock Polka, composed by Pat Prilly, Fernand Bouillon, Harriet Brewer. It is performed by Jean-Jacques Perret and is used with his kind permission. The local news stories that we will be reading come from the Enfield Independent and Enfield Dispatch and are their copyright. For the week beginning 25th of September, the sunrise time is 06.50 and the sunset time is 18.52. Uh, we also have some special notices from Enfield Home Library Service and Enfield Vision, which I will now read. Did you know that Enfield has a home library service? This means that if mobility, disability or caring responsibilities make it difficult for you to visit the library, then we can bring the library to you and there's no charge. The Home Library is run in conjunction with the Royal Voluntary Service, who vet and manage our volunteers. You tell us the sort of things you like to read and we will select books for you and deliver them to your home once every four weeks. As well as ordinary print titles, we have audiobooks on CDs and large print titles. There are also a limited number available in different languages. Separately, the Enfield Home Library Service offers assistance with digital library content, so we can help you get to grips with borrowing e-books or audiobooks from the library to read or listen to on a phone or tablet. For more information or to see if you can sign up for this service, email enfield.hls at royalvoluntaryservice.org.uk or call Shona Tivan on 078-265-11094 And another notice from Enfield Vision. We are a group of visually impaired people determined to improve the environment and to reduce the everyday problems of blind and partially sighted people. We are registered with the Charity Commission as an organisation with the specific aim of promoting the well-being of visually impaired people living in Enfield. We hold a drop-in morning, usually on the third Thursday in each month, 
from 10am to 1pm at Park Avenue Resource Centre, Bushill Park, Enfield. And the exercise classes are also now running again. The dates for the next couple of months are Thursday the 19th of October and Thursday the 16th of November. For further information, please contact the Enfield Vision Group on 020-8373-6260, 0208-8373-6260, or email information at enfieldvision.org.uk. And we've actually had an, an update from Enfield Vision uh, telling us that the October session on the 19th of October um, won't be taking place as it's holding a focus day at Community House, 3114 Street, N9OPZ, uh, from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. This means that there will be no drop-in morning on Thursday the 19th of October at the Park Avenue Centre. Do get in touch with us to share your own news and special announcements. We love to hear from you. If you have any comments about the Enfield Talking newspaper, please phone Diane de Jersey on 07899 854582. That's 07899854582. She is your listener's representative and we'd be pleased to help you. Now, Bill will read the lead story. Cafes at four Enfield parks forced to close by the council after contract breach. Cafes in four borough parks have all been suddenly shut down by Enfield Council after the leaseholder were accused of breaching their contract with the authority. The popular cafes at Town Park, Trent Park, Oakwood Park and White Webbs Park were all closed yesterday, Tuesday the 13th, when a notice of forfeiture was attached to their doors by Equivo Limited, acting on behalf of the council. The notices warned the leaseholders for each cafe, which have different names but are all owned by the same person, that the landlord is entitled to repossess the premises and has now exercised their right following a breach of the lease. Any person who attempts to enter these premises without express permission of the landlord may be liable to civil and or criminal proceedings being brought against them. Osgur Celebi is the owner of each of the businesses, Enfield Catering Limited, Oakwood Catering Limited, Town Catering Limited and Trent Park Catering Limited that operate the four cafes. He could not be reached for comment. Sean Wilkinson, chair of the Friends of White Webbs Park, told the dispatch, these are important community resources. It's all very well the council saying they haven't paid the rent but the council is responsible for the lease and ensuring a service is available for the general public. At White Webs, the cafe provided a service that was valued by park users. It contributed to the health and mental health of a large number of people in the community, and I think the council has an obligation to ensure that the service is maintained. 
Enfield Council has been contacted for comment about the cafe closures and asked how long it will be before new leaseholders are put in place, but they have yet to provide a statement. However, an email sent by the council's parks team to local stakeholders said, this is a positive step towards providing catering options which align to the park and its users by offering suitable food and beverages and operating at a higher tier of food hygiene and provision. We appreciate that this will cause temporary frustration amongst our park users while appraisals are performed for the alternative options. However, we are focused on an early resolution. Sean added that he felt sorry for the many workers who would likely have lost their jobs as a result of the closures. He said the people who have worked at Whitewebs made a tremendous effort to make it a community cafe and there was a good relationship with the customers. Council announces better leisure provider as existing deal axed. Financial problems at Fusion Lifestyle lead Council to end contract and sign new deal with Greenwich Leisure Limited. Greenwich Leisure Limited operates scores of facilities across London under the name Better. Fusion Lifestyle's contract to run Enfield's leisure centres and swimming pools will end on the 3rd of December 2023, after an agreement was reached to end their deal early. The firm had been running the borough's facilities since 2010. A new provider, Greenwich Leisure Limited, GLL, will take over the running of Enfield's six council-owned leisure centres later this year. It will operate under its brand name, Better. The move follows concerns raised by the council earlier this year over how Fusion was running Arnus Pool, Bramley Bowl Centre and Edmonton Green, Southbury, Albany and Southgate Leisure Centres. A council report published in May stated Fusion's finances had been severely affected by the pandemic and that since December last year, Albany, Edmonton and Southbury Leisure Centres had experienced a significant number of maintenance faults that have impacted on the availability of the swimming pools. Council chiefs agreed at the time to produce an improvement plan with Fusion senior managers with the aim of bringing stability back to the service. However, this appears to have been unsuccessful as it was announced on Monday the 18th of September that Fusion will refocus its strategic objectives to concentrate on other areas of its business. The council said it wished to ensure a smooth and orderly handover and minimise any impact on users of the leisure facilities in Enfield. Chinelo Anyanwu, the council's cabinet member for culture, open spaces and local economy, said, I am delighted that we have been able to enter an agreement with GLL to provide excellent leisure facilities for the people of Enfield. We are working with GLL to ensure that there is a seamless transition so that staff and users of our leisure centres are not impacted by the change of provider. We will also invite community groups who use these facilities to meet with GLL to discuss arrangements going forward. We look forward to working with GLL to further shape and develop the borough's sports and leisure provision. 
Enfield Council is committed to improving leisure and sports opportunities for local people to enable more active lifestyles, which in turn will support stronger, healthier and safer communities. GLL is a not-for-profit social enterprise with 30 years' experience in the industry, running more than 250 sports and leisure facilities in London and across the UK. Peter Bundy, CEO of GLL, said, Our new partnership with Enfield Council brings staff and customers of the six leisure centres into the GLL family with the key aim of improving services for everyone. GLL's award-winning charitable social enterprise model offers huge benefits to public services, as we don't have shareholders to pay, and can invest back into grassroots programmes, facilities and charitable foundations to improve the health and well-being of local communities. In addition, our employee-owned business offers great training and career opportunities for our employees locally and across the UK. The transition from Fusion to GLL will likely take place in late November and early December. Members and visitors to the leisure centres will, in the meantime, be able to use the facilities as usual. Empowering Enfield's Young Voices A remarkable not-for-profit organisation has burst onto the scene, driven by the unwavering commitment of three passionate Enfield residents, Jackie Glover, Joseph Agar and myself. Youth Made Place CIC is a trailblazing initiative aiming to empower young people with the ability to shape their environments. I decided to establish the organisation after my experience as an urban design professional and as a design and technology teacher spanning 14 years propelled me to address the prevailing lack of meaningful engagement with young minds. We are embarking on a mission to revolutionise the way young people are involved in decision-making processes that impact their communities. As its founder, I was determined to create a platform where the, youth, where the voices of youth would be heard, valued and seamlessly integrated into the fabric of their surroundings. Fueled by a deep-seated disappointment resulting from the absence of genuine engagement with young individuals, I recognised the immense potential for transformative change. I witnessed firsthand the missed opportunities in planning processes where the perspectives and insights of young people were often not being achieved. As a design and technology teacher, I knew that their voices held immense value and had the power to shape environments in innovative and impactful ways. Youth Made Place represents a groundbreaking endeavour firmly rooted in the belief that empowering young minds and involving them in co-design, consultation and engagement processes will pave the way for inclusive, vibrant and sustainable communities. Through workshops, interactive sessions and design charrettes, Youth Made Place provides a platform for young people to actively participate in shaping their built environment. By involving young minds in the decision-making processes, Youth Made Place cultivates a sense of ownership, pride and civic responsibility, instilling in them the belief that their opinions matter and their ideas can shape the world around them. With our blend of urban design and planning expertise and educational acumen, Youth Made Place envisions a future where the voices of young individuals resonate throughout planning and design decisions. By empowering them to influence the environments of tomorrow, we are seeking to create a legacy of inclusive spaces that celebrate diversity, spark innovation and nurture a sense of belonging within communities.
As Youth Made Place gains momentum, we are inviting schools, colleges and youth groups in Enfield to join forces in this transformative mission. Together, we can empower young voices, elevate community engagement and shape a brighter future for all. Let's unite in harnessing the potential of our young people and build a world where their dreams become reality. Find out more about Youth Made Place CIC and get involved. Email hello at youthmadeplace.co.uk or visit youthmadeplace.co.uk. Council considers modular homes on car parks as a temporary housing solution. Raft of measures discussed that Council desperately tries to plunge, plug budget hole amid spike in use of hotels as temporary accommodation, reports Simon Allen, local democracy reporter. The Council could start installing modular homes on car parks. Modular homes on car parks could become a solution to Enfield's homeless crisis as the Council looks to slash spending on hotel rooms for use as temporary accommodation. The Civic Centre is set to spend £330,000 on studies to test the feasibility of modular housing, which is manufactured quickly off-site and can be assembled on vacant land, car parks and rooftops. It is one of a raft of initiatives designed to cut spending on bed and breakfast accommodation, including hotels which the council acknowledges are inappropriate for families. Enfield Council has increasingly used the private rented sector to house homeless families in recent years because of a shortage of social housing in the borough but soaring interest rates over the past 12 months have plunged the sector into crisis as landlords decide to hike rents or sell up in response. In Enfield, Section 21 no-fault eviction rates recently became the highest in London. As a result, hundreds of Enfield families are now being housed in hotels and other types of B&B accommodation, often for months on end. This comes as a significant cost to the council and it is currently forecasting an unsustainable £17.8 million overspend on this year's temporary accommodation budget. According to reports presented to a meeting of the council's cabinet on Wednesday the 13th of September, Housing a family in a hotel typically costs £45,424 per year, but housing them in a modular home owned by the local authority instead would only cost £4,307 per year. Modular homes are built off-site and can be delivered with internal fittings already provided. They are lightweight, easy to transport and require only shallow foundations. The council says the homes can be installed on car parks using steel frame stilts, meaning the car parks can still be used. It hopes to provide around 99 units by 2028 and 30 rooftop units by 2027 at a cost of £24.4 million. Other initiatives proposed by the council include 
adding extra stories to existing temporary accommodation blocks, which can sometimes be done without full planning permission following changes to permitted development rights in 2020. Housing Gateway Limited, a council-owned company set up to acquire properties for use as affordable rented accommodation, is all look, also looking to add around 350 new homes to its portfolio over the next five years. The council will continue to use vacant homes on housing estates that are awaiting regeneration, such as Joyce Avenue, and Snell's Park in Edmonton as an interim solution to the surge in homelessness. The last council figure revealed 3,100 Enfield households are living in temporary accommodation and that the proportion of those houses in B&Bs is continuing to rise. George Sava, Enfield's cabinet member for social housing, accused the government of failing to tackle the housing crisis and said 400 homeless families were approaching the council every month as the cost of living crisis hits and landlords leave the market. He told Wednesday's meeting that the council was on the move all the time, trying to find new ways to help people have a roof over their heads. In June, the council agreed a new policy of moving families stuck in hotels away from London and the southeast of England as a solution to the problem. Commenting on the plans for modular homes, Director of Housing and Regeneration Joanna Drew said the council was still at the exploratory stage, but was very clear that any housing provision has to meet essential space standards, thermal standards and general amenities around it that support family life. Volunteers needed to make Enfield greener and healthier. Deaf and disabled people who live, work or study in Enfield are being invited to join the Journeys and Places Disability Reference Group to help make Enfield a greener, healthier and more vibrant place to live. The group is being formed by Enfield Council's Journeys and Places programme that encourages people to make sustainable daily journeys for themselves and for the planet. The goal is to ensure the views of deaf and disabled people are heard throughout the design phases on Journeys and Places projects that will help shape projects such as parklets, public space improvements, school streets, walking routes, town centre improvements and more. Council bosses would like to particularly hear from people who have a physical, sensory, intellectual or mental health impairment and are interested in sharing their personal experiences and views to help build an understanding of the needs of the deaf and disabled in Enfield. Councillor responsible for environment at Enfield Council, Rick Jewell, said... I am pleased the Council is forming this group, as it will help us to build an understanding of the needs of deaf and disabled people in relation to transportation and our public spaces in Enfield. I would encourage deaf or disabled people of all ages and backgrounds to apply for a place on the reference group so we can hear as wide a range of views as possible. 
Any personal experiences and views people are willing to share will help build an understanding across the Journeys and Places team of the needs of deaf and disabled people in relation to access, public spaces, road safety, walking, cycling, using public transport and getting around the borough in other ways. For further information and to apply, visit letstalk.enfield.gov.uk forward stroke DRG. That's letstalk.enfield.gov.uk forward slash DRG. Applications are also welcome from personal assistance of deaf and disabled people in Enfield. Staff at community hubs in Enfield Town and Edmonton Green Libraries are also available to help interested people to make an application. Applicants can drop in at any time between 9.30am and 2.30pm from Monday to Friday. Impact of Council Tax Support Scheme Cuts Spelled Out A Civic Centre Faces £39 million Budget Cap Cuts to Council Tax Support Scheme would hit harder for disabled people, carers, ethnic minority, minorities and women, reports Simon Allen, local democracy reporter. Women, ethnic minorities and disabled people are among those set to bear the brunt of planned cuts to council tax discounts affecting thousands of Enfield residents. A proposed shake-up of the borough's council tax support scheme would see residents already on low incomes pay an average of £8.84 more per week, with the changes having a significant negative impact across all working-age claimants. More than 10,000 households would see their weekly bills rise up to £5, but some would face much deeper costs, with more than 1,000 paying between £20 and £25 extra per week, and 127 facing hikes of £40 to £65 per week. Enfield Council claims its current council tax support scheme is one of the most generous in London, and the Labour Administration's 2022 local election manifesto pledged to maintain our generous £38 million council tax support scheme benefiting a third of Enfield's households. But with a £39.4 million budget black hole to fill, the authority wants to slash the cost of the scheme to £26 million. The proposed shake-up would see the minimum payment made by working-age claimants rise from 24.5% to 50% of the council tax rate for their properties. In addition, support would only be provided up to band C property values, A minimum deduction of £5.52 per week would also be introduced for non-dependent adults living in a property, while current deductions would rise by 20%. After factoring in the costs of the proposed shake-up, the net saving to the council is estimated to be £7.3 million. But reports drawn up by the council reveal disabled and carer households would definitely be negatively impacted, as they would no longer receive 100% council tax support. Ethnic minority households are also expected to be disproportionately negatively impacted by the changes as analysis suggests they're more likely to be claiming council tax support. With female claimants outnumbering male claimants by around 2 to 1, women are also set to be disproportionately affected. 
the Council has set out a range of actions to reduce the impact of the changes, including adding an extra £1 million to a hardship fund designed to support the most vulnerable residents. Pensioners, war widows and care leavers under the age of 25 are exempt from the increase in the minimum payment. The proposed changes were set out in reports presented to a meeting of the Council's Cabinet on Wednesday the 13th of September. During the meeting, members of the Labour administration blamed the Council's financial woes on the Conservative government's management of the economy, claiming it had fuelled the inflation that accounts for £20 million of the budget cap forecast for the 2024-25 financial year. They also said the government had its cuts funding for council tax support since handing responsibility for the schemes to local authorities. The cost of Enfield's council tax support scheme is expected to climb to £50 million by 2026 unless changes are made. Council leader Nessel Kaliskan said this was not sustainable or affordable for any local authority and the council had no choice but to look at our options. She added, the fact that we would still maintain one of the most generous council tax support schemes is a reflection of our commitment to support the poorest in our borough, but we have to do that in the means that are available to us. Speaking outside the meeting, Conservative Shadow Cabinet Minister for Finance James Hockney said the proposed changes would break Labour's manifesto pledge to maintain support at £38 million. He added, These devastating labour cuts will impact over 30,000 low-income households in the borough, including over 12,000 lone parent households with one or more children. Enfield Labour's reckless financial strategy of the council, being the 10th most indebted authority in the country, is having huge consequences. As an opposition, we warned the Labour administration about this for years, which they ignored. Managing the debt means taking increasingly huge amounts of money out of the frontline services to residents. In 2021, debt repayments were £20 million, last year £26 million, this year £32 million, next year £34 million and the following year £42 million. All money that has to be found and consequently devastating cuts to the services the council provides to the residents to cover the debt. Cabinet members agreed to hold a 12-week public consultation on the proposed changes which is set to run from September until December. A final decision on whether to implement the changes will be made during a Cabinet meeting in February. Two more by-elections. Two by-elections will be held on the same day after a pair of councillors simultaneously quit. Haringey Council recently announced that the Labour duo Charles Ajay, who represented South Tottenham Ward, and Yvonne Say, who represented White Hart Lane, are no longer serving as elected councillors. It has now been confirmed that constituents in both wards will head to the polls on October the 5th, which will mean four by-elections have been staged in the borough this year. The reason for the council's departures have not yet been made public, with council leader Pere Ahmed thanking them for their long service. She said, I would like to extend my thanks to both Councillor Say and Councillor Ajay for their long service to our borough and wish them both well for the future. 
Liberal Democrat leader Luke Cowell Harrison said, People in Tottenham who will be voting in their third and fourth by-elections in a matter of months have been taken for granted by the Labour Party for far too long. Candidate nominations must be received by tomorrow and constituents must register to vote by September the 18th. Care Home's sponsored walk raises nearly £3,000 for charity. Hugh Middleton House in Southgate raised the money after completing a sponsored walk on the hottest day of the year. Staff and residents from a care home in Southgate have raised nearly £3,000 in support of Multiple Sclerosis Society after completing a sponsored walk. The team from Hugh Middleton House completed their walk on Saturday the 9th of September when temperatures hit 32 degrees in London. The Orange Army brought helium-filled balloons with them to highlight the good cause while handing out leaflets about MS along the way. In total, they raised £2,880. Residence Ambassador Rosa Bartolino said, I would like to thank you for your continual support and I would also mention that care home operator Barchester Healthcare was instrumental with their support. The camaraderie among the group was to be admired with lots of laughter and goodwill. Hugh Middleton House Care Home in Old Farm Avenue provides nursing care, dementia care, residential care and respite care. Survey reveals which car brands are driven by worse drivers in UK. Analysis of data obtained from vehicles that have a red-tailed telematics device or black box installed to record driver behaviour as part of a driver's motor insurance policy has revealed the best and worst driven brands of vehicles on UK roads, with Audi as the brand with the worst driver behaviour and Toyota being the brand with drivers demonstrating the best driver behaviour. Redtail's telematic devices calculate a driver's score for motor insurance purposes. This score is based on driving behaviours linked to accidents such as fast or bad cornering, tailgating, harsh braking and acceleration and excessive speed. These parameters have been fine-tuned over many years. Analysis of past accidents highlights that drivers with the poorest scores are over 10 times more likely to be involved in an accident than those with the best scores. Redtail divides driving risks into two types, those that drivers can control and those they can't. Based on the controllable behaviours, Audi is one of the worst driven cars out there, while Toyota is one of the safest. To figure out how risky a driver's habits are, the company looks at seven different behaviours that they can control. For example, harsh acceleration results in greater wear and tear on a vehicle and often leads to aggression-related driving incidents and more braking, which wastes energy. Permile-driven Audis and BMWs are the most likely to have incidents of harsh acceleration. Redtail's analysis identified that drivers of Audis and BMWs have the harshest accelerator foot while Toyotas and Dakai, Dakai's, ha, Dacia's, that's the one, yeah, Dacia's, sorry, Dacia's, have 66% and 75% fewer harsh acceleration incidents respectively. Braking too hard is also a problem. 
Braking unnecessarily is the biggest waste of fuel and braking harshly is the quickest way to lose control. It can make the car skid, which can cause accidents and wear out the brakes and tyres. Audi is still at the top of the list for this problem with harsh braking events and incident every 2.5 miles. However, Land Rover has less than half of this with one every six miles. Turning corners too fast can be risky too, especially if braking at the same time. With incidents occurring every 45 miles, Audi drivers top this list too. The company saw Toyota drivers showing by far the best anticipation and only cornering badly every 300 miles. Finally, it's no surprise that driving too fast in general can make it harder to stop the car in an emergency and cause significantly more damage if the vehicle is involved in an accident. On average, Audis and BMWs are the fastest, reaching maximum speeds nearly 20% greater than Toyotas. Why you should join U3A. University of the Third Age, U3A, is a charitable organisation within the UK that provides the opportunity for those who have retired from work to come together and learn for fun. There are many branches across the country, totalling a membership of over 430,000 people nationwide. It is an organisation for socialising, but at the same time providing a forum for developing existing interests or exploring and learning new ideas and skills. Our motto is, learn, laugh, live. Every year we hold a national U3A day which celebrates and promotes our organisation. This year we will be having an information stall set up in Palace Gardens Shopping Centre in Enfield Town on Saturday the 16th of September between 10am and 3pm. Our own local branch of Enfield 3A was established in 1994 and has a thriving membership of over 350 people. It continues to grow in numbers in keeping with the aim of U3A movement. We bring people together and make new friends, develop their existing interests and learn new ones in an informed, informal, relaxed environment. This may be in a member's home, a local church or even a pub. We do not sit any exams. Everything we do is purely for fun. At present, we have 32 active groups with varying activities and are adding more groups to our list of activities all the time. The groups range from board games to language learning to handicrafts to theatre visits to art appreciation and much more. For example, we have a West End theatre group who recently went to see the new musical Bonnie and Clyde. Another group visited the Chelsea Physic Garden where a well-informed guide told the group about the role plants play in human life. Yet another group donned their finery and took off for Royal Ascot where a fun day was had by one and all betting on the horses. Our staff in September will feature a number of groups. Sorry, our stall in September will feature a number of groups and give you more information about them. So come along, have a look, and consider joining our organisation. For more information, 
about U3A Enfield, visit u3asites.org.uk forward slash Enfield. That's u3asites.org.uk forward slash Enfield. Poundland plan for Wilco's. Two North London Wilco shops are set to become Poundlands. PwC Administrators for Wilco announced on September the 12th that it agreed to sell 71 of the collapsed retailer's shops to Poundland owner Pepco. These sites will be turned into Poundland shops and former Wilco staff will be given priority for the new jobs created when they open. Edmonton Green Wilco in North Square and the Wembley Wilco in High Road are among those set to become Poundland shops. Poundland Managing Director Barry Williams said, In the coming weeks we will work quickly with landlords so we can open these stores as Poundlands. Once that process is complete, we will ensure a significant number of the Wilco colleagues will join our Poundland team, he added. Poundland said... Its new lease agreements are set to be completed in early autumn and it aims to open the stores by the end of 2023. Discount retailer B&M has also agreed to take over a number of Wilco stores but the specific branches have not yet been confirmed. Tower block approved. Fourth time that scheme has been presented to the council. Plans for an 18-storey tower block made up 100% of social rent homes, have been approved to help meet the borough's soaring demand for low-cost housing. Developer Social Capital Partners won permission to demolish the Gilpins Bell pub in 4th Street, Angel Edmonton, and build 110 homes plus commercial space that could be used to provide a replacement public house. The proposals were presented to Enfield Council's planning committee for the fourth time last Tuesday after previous versions of the scheme were rejected. The most recent plan was turned down in January last year over fears it would harm 4th Street Conservation Area and other heritage assets with councillors describing the scheme as ugly and monolithic. Since then, the borough has faced soaring homelessness and an acute shortage of affordable rented accommodation, meaning hundreds of families have been forced to live in hotels and other bed-and-breakfast accommodation. Faced with a £20 million hole in its budget caused by additional spending on temporary housing, the council started moving homeless families away from London and the south-east of England. Andy Hyam, the council's head of development management, told the meeting that the changed circumstances, plus comments made on the plans by the Greater London Authority, GLA, meant the committee should review the application before making a final decision. Although London Mayor Sadiq Khan did not use his powers to intervene following the latest refusal, the GLA warned the failure to provide the homes would have an impact on the implementation of the London plan. The GLA also strongly supported the housing offer, including the provision of 20% family-sized units. It welcomed changes to the tower's design and said the heritage impacts could be acceptable on balance when weighed against the public benefits of the scheme. The developer has also changed the housing offer from London affordable rent to lower-cost social rent homes, which will be set at 60% of local rents and included a second staircase to provide an alternative fire escape route. 
Rediscovering Enfield's Lost Royal Palace Judith Stones from Enfield Archaeological Society on the progress made this year in uncovering more of Elsing Palace's secrets. You wouldn't know to look at it, but in what are now the grounds of Fawlty Hall Estate in the north of Enfield was once a palace owned by Henry VIII and where Elizabeth I spent some of her childhood. Elsing, or Enfield House as it was also known, was a large moated palace with royal apartments, large kitchens, a great hall for feasting and a detached service court full of barns, stables and accommodation for at least 100 servants. Elsing Palace would have been literally, sorry, Elsing Palace would have literally been fit for a king or future queen and Henry had visited many times with his father, Henry VII, when it was owned by Sir Thomas Lovell. One of Elsing's big attractions was its access to the royal hunting forests of Enfield Chase, and in 1539 Henry acquired it as one of his many palaces. Both the future Edward VI and Elizabeth I also lived in Elsing at times. Indeed, Edward was even told he was king there after the death of his father in 1547. However, by 1600 the palace fell out of royal favour and was demolished in around 1657 by its new owner, Nicholas Rainton of Fawlty Hall. The buried remains of the palace were rediscovered by Enfield Archaeological Society in the 1960s and for the past two decades our community-based team has gradually been excavating parts of the large complex. The site is so historically important to have been scheduled as an ancient monument meaning government permission is required for every excavation and there are also strict laws restricting activities such as metal detecting. Having previously worked out the plan of most of the palace and excavated one whole wing of the service buildings, including a huge furnace which fired a vat for boiling large joints of meat, in July this year we started to examine a key part of the site known as the inner gatehouse. Fronted by an impressive moat many metres wide which will have been crossed by a bridge, this was a four-storey building that restricted access between the service court and the inner court where the royal apartments lay. Recent excavations have shown that the foundations of the inner gatehouse survive surprisingly intact allowing archaeologists to reconstruct the grandeur of the building that may have been built as early as 1430 by the palace's first owners, the Tiptoft family. Though excavations are at a fairly early stage and may continue annually for some years, already sections of very early brick walls, then terribly prestigious, are suggesting just how large the gatehouse was. We have uncovered the upper levels of a cellar whose roof was supported by massive brick-built, probably eight-sided columns. Among the debris backfilling the cellar, there are also clues to what the upper stories would have been like, 
such as a high-quality carved stonework from its grand fireplaces. Because the gatehouse didn't just control access to the private royal quarters, it was also where some of the chief members of the royal court would live when the king or queen were using the palace. One of the questions the archaeologists are trying to answer is how much successive owners, including the king, elaborated the gatehouse even further, and a significant discovery has been freestanding walls running off one side of it. These were carefully, skillfully and solidly built brick walls again fe feature the bases for octagonal columns at intervals along them and as they approach the gatehouse itself have an ornamental turret projecting from them. From generous grants from the Enfield Council's Stories of Enfield project, supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund and the Enfield Society, EAS, has published two new books about Elsing Palace. Monarchs, Courtiers and Technocrats, Elsing Palace, Enfield, Place and People, written by Martin Dern, details archaeological discoveries since the 1960s with research into the extraordinary range of available historical sources, while Neil and John Pinchbeck's Elsing, Enfield's Lost Palace Revealed takes a more condensed approach to the story. Both books are available from enfarcsoc.org that's E-N-F-A-R-C-H-S-O-C.org with the second also on sale at Forty Hall's gift shop and at Dugdale Art Centre in Enfield Town. The EAS website includes a short film about the 2022 excavations created by Footpath Films and make sure to look out for an episode of Digging for Britain on BBC Two early in 2024 featuring this year's excavations. And now for some football. Town win but defeats for Enfield and Borough. Another unbeaten FA Cup battle to come. Enfield Town are heading north after the draw for the third qualifying round of the FA Cup. And it won't be easy with Hales Owen Town, the destination, whose nickname I can only assume is the Yelts. Uh, they play in the west of Birmingham, are unbeaten in the Southern League Premier Division Central this season after four wins and four draws from their eight games. Speaking on the club's website, manager Gavin McPherson believes it could be one of the ties of the round. He said, it's a game we should all be looking forward to. It's intriguing because both clubs will know nothing about the other. In many people's eyes, we'll be underdogs, and I don't mind that. Any team that has made it this far in the competition will be tough opponents, and Hales Owen will be no different. They've started well, but so have we. I know our supporters will travel in numbers, so it should be a competitive game. Town booked their place in the round two wins sorry Town booked their place in the round two wins from the first round proper thanks to a 3-0 success over Felixstowe and Walton United a blistering start paved the way for a success that wasn't always comfortable 
Sam Young scored from the penalty spot on four minutes after a foul on Ollie Knight, and it was the latter who made it two. Four minutes later, after good passing between Marcus Wiley and Reese Beckles Richards, Joe Payne ended the scoring on 14 minutes. The visitors tried their hardest after the break to get back into it, with tall striker Joss Mayhew coming off the bench to good effect. He headed wide just after the restart and then missed another decent chance, as did Joshua Hitter. Payne did hit the post late on, but the boss was not too impressed with the second half showing. He said, I was disappointed with the second half. We saw it coming, but I don't think we dealt with it particularly well. If they'd got an early goal then, we could have had a hell of a game on our hands. But you have to take your hat off to the boys. It was no fluke. They took on board exactly what we wanted them to do inside the first 35 minutes. Often at 3-0, human nature dictates sometimes that you think the game is done. I never think like that, but it's understandable. In the end of the first half was good enough to do the job. Enfield's return to action in Isthmian League Division 1 North ended in a 3-0 loss at home to Redbridge. It was Alex Salmon's first match in charge and saw them with a whole host of players making their debut. Enfield Borough lost 6-1 away to second place Cannons Wood in the Eastern Counties League First Division South. Evan Conboy got their only goal. And now for a letter. Slow down, dear Enfield Dispatch. As a resident of Enfield Chase, I'm angered and dismayed by the number of drivers speeding on our local roads. Far too many people blatantly disregard the speed limit and bomb along narrow roads in residential areas. This is extremely dangerous to pedestrians, cyclists and other motorists. It's not just boy racers either. Many of these speeders are average drivers who think they are safe because they're only going 35 in a 30 zone. The lack of awareness of more vulnerable road users is shocking as well. I have seen multiple incidents of motorists failing to stop at zebra crossings even when pedestrians are already halfway across the road. Many people in Enfield drive however many other use forms of active transport that exposes them to risks from speeding motorists. I implore our local drivers to slow down and take care. Alice Kay, Enfield Town. Rack in Enfield's school buildings. Latest crisis for Sunak government. Two schools in Enfield are now known to contain a type of concrete that is prone to collapse, with a suspected third undergoing surveys. Enfield Council confirmed last week that St Ignatius College in Bulls Cross and Winchmore School in Winchmore Hill had identified reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete rack on their sites. Churchfield Primary School in Edmonton has surveyors on on site to establish whether rack is present. The concrete material used in the construction of schools and other public buildings from the 1950s to the 1990s has a lifespan of around 30 years. Last week, the government told 104 schools to stop using buildings known to contain rack until safety measures had been put in place. 
it said that more than 50 schools had already installed mitigations this year. Following the announcement, Enfield Council said no schools in the borough had been contacted by the Department of Education and asked to find alternative locations to teach as a result of building safety concerns. The council has now issued a statement confirming that Winchmore School, a state secondary school, also has rack in a small part of the school in a changing room and corridor ceiling between the changing room and the sports hall. It said the area had been sealed off for some time. A council spokesman said, The health and safety of staff and pupils is our top priority and Enfield Council has been working closely with all schools to identify whether they have been affected by the recent issues with RAC. We are aware of three schools impacted and can confirm that no schools have had to be closed. All Enfield schools were able to open for the return of the academic year. Winchmore School has identified rack in a small part of the school in a changing room and corridor ceiling between the changing room and the sports hall. This area has been sealed off for some time, so there is no danger to staff and pupils. St Ignatius College has identified rack in different parts of the school, but this is also in an area of the school that has been sealed off. This situation continues to unfold and Enfield Council will continue to work closely with all our local schools to support them as fully as possible through this challenging period. We have reached the end of our programme for this week, but do stay tuned to listen to an archive episode from 1974. Thank you for listening. So from the team of Joel, Mary and Bill, with Hass and birthday girl Karis on the controls, goodbye. Please remember to turn over the address label in your postal packet, put the memory stick into the packet in a closed position and return it to us as soon as possible in ready for the next edition. You can now also listen to our podcast by searching for Enfield Talking Newspaper on your favourite podcast app or listen to us on your smart speaker by saying play podcast Enfield Talking Newspaper. Don't forget you can call Diane de Jersey regarding any help you may require in connection with Enfield Talking Newspaper on 07 That's 07-899-854-582. The Enfield Talking Newspaper will be with you again in one week's time. Hello, this is Hass, and I'm here to introduce a selection of recordings from the Enfield Talking Newspaper archive. A few cassette recordings from the first 50 years of the talking newspaper have survived. And once a month, you'll hear the local news from the Enfield area as it was from 1974 through to 2011. Our first dive into the archive takes us to the 29th of September 1974, when beer was 22 and a half pence a pint, kung fu fighting was number one, 
and the Enfield Talking newspaper was called the Enfield Microphone. Before the news from 1974, this episode starts with a look back on how the Enfield Microphone got started. So sit back and have a listen to how things were back then. This is Peter Sykes introducing the 300th edition of the Enfield Microphone, dateline 29th of September 1974. Once again, June Chu, Patricia Albert, Dennis Goodwin and me, Peter Sykes, are here for this very special occasion. And as this is the 300th edition of the Enfield Microphone, we thought it would be a suitable occasion to go back in time and tell new listeners how it all began. The news tape was started by Toc H, so who better to tell us about it than John and Gladys Dredge, who were closely involved in the scheme from the beginning. It started in 1960. I remember one Friday night I was going to Toc H, and Morris Strivens, who some of you may remember, an old Toc H member, put the project to me in a car, and uh, I was very keen on it. So we mentioned it at the branch meeting, and the chaps got interested and Morris Strivens arranged to see the manager of Howard's, the radio shop in the town and uh, the manager agreed to let us have two Simon Symbol tape recorders and maintain them free of charge provided they were used for the blind. He also went along to see the editor of the Enfield Gazette and he got his cooperation as well and uh, Richard Collinson was the reporter at the time He'd done a lot of work with the uh, project, and Miss Albert, of course, who was there from the beginning. And uh, I appreciated myself because I'd never been able to read a newspaper. Well, I was in the retail news agency trade for uh, over 30 years. I've never actually been able to read a a paper where I was sent them to the public. So, of course, it was uh, quite a boon to me. Thank you very much. Gladys, it was about 1960. About 1960, yes. I remember yeah. Christopher was about 11, because I remember one night we, we used to, from time to time, have difficulty with readers. Uh, usually it was the Toc H men, and they were involved in other uh, things, and they couldn't always come, so sometimes they were short of readers, and one night we had two, and they brought Christopher in to do it, and I think he then was the youngest reader. He has read on it since, since he's grown up, but he doesn't do it now. But now, a family tradition is kept up by Peter Sykes, our nephew. And um, we are very grateful, we always have been, for uh, this Enfield microphone, which comes round to us fortnightly, and we get all the news on it. It's lovely for both of us to listen to. It's nice also to keep uh, contact with Miss Albert, because, as most of you know now, she's left Enfield as a home teacher, but she's still our Enfield mic uh, contact, which is lovely. Oh, well, thank you for that kind word. And uh, you, of course, were probably the um, first listeners, and um, probably the last of the first listeners uh, remaining. I can't yes, think of anyone else. Mrs. West, who is yeah. now no longer with and us. And how, how many people did Toc H sort of get round? Oh, I just don't know. There's about 12, yes. yes. The two machines used to go round to uh, six to seven people. 
but they used to go around once a week then and it was rather an involved um, transport business because not only did the Tok H men read on the tape each week but they used to provide the transport and we had a little shop at the time and as we were always open or more or less always open available anyway and on the spot and we had a telephone um, I used to look after the transport part of it and oh it was a headache at times especially when the machines went wrong or the tapes all came undone and oh, it was a hectic job to get them all back into their cassettes <laughs> Well I think the North London Tape and High Fry Club became involved some time late in yes. 1961 Yes about 18 months after, two years or something like that. Two years, I would think about 62 they yeah. took over. I'm not sure, but I think it was 62. It may have been earlier. But it was, um, well, it got too big for the few men. Everybody wanted the Enfield mic, and gradually it got bigger and bigger as the news got round that this news tape was available. The blind people said, oh, can we have it? We'd like it to come to us. And, of course, the little branch at well, the, the branch at Tok H couldn't uh, cope with it all and they hadn't got the equipment or the uh, mm-hmm. manpower to cope. So we, uh, Miss Auburn, I think, suggested that perhaps uh, the, Enf- the uh, North London Tape and High Fire Cup would be interested. And although the Tok H men for a little while did help with the reading, gradually it went all over to them. They've done a marvellous job. Well, I think we've still got a contact in Tok H because uh, Mrs. Constable still takes the tape round. I've just thought of um, Mrs. Skelton, who was one of the first listeners, and she will be 98 in October. Um, and there's also another one, uh, an elderly lady, who will be 97 in at the end of Je- uh, December, 31st of December, Mrs. Rogers of Cecil Road. Happy birthday, Mrs. Rogers, from Mr. and Mrs. Dredge. And, of course, to Mrs. Skelton, who we've heard a lot about. <laughs> and uh, if there are any other listeners who were in at the beginning, or almost at the beginning, we'd like to wish them all the best for the next 300 editions. Yes, it, I was want to say 300 years. I think they do still interest themselves in the blind people, don't they? Oh, well, yes. We, we would always do anything, well... Uh, being a member of uh, the branch, you know, um, we're getting in both ends, the receiving end and from the point of view of uh, arranging different things. When the North London Tape and Hi-Fi Club took over, they expanded the service and gradually increased the number of listeners to 60. 30 Riddler Road became the centre of the organisation and Mary, Richard and Joe Collinson were mainly responsible for the production of the tape, copying and distributing the machines to the drivers. When Richard went to Australia, Ron and Den Goodwin took over the production of the tape. Listeners who knew the Collinson family will be glad to know that they have settled happily in Gloucestershire running a village store and post office, which is doing well even in these hard times. During the week, Richard lives and works in Uxbridge, but on a recent visit to Enfield, he recorded this message. When you leave a town you've lived in for years, you have to leave behind friends, as well as your own mental picture of what that town looks like. I left Enfield a couple of years ago. I returned often enough to see the friends, but not often enough to keep up with the changes. Shops change hands, others are knocked down, traffic lights are put up, 
and road systems altered. Not necessarily changes for the worse, but each one inevitably turns Enfield into someone else's town. Still, some things do stay the same, like the Enfield microphone. It seems wonderful that the rather primitive recording and dubbing sessions we fumbled about with in the early 1960s should have developed into a quite streamlined setup that still brings you the news in your own homes. While I'm something of an outsider now, I still have a great fondness for the Enfield microphone. And may the Enfield mic remain as familiar to all of us in the 1980s. Since the Collisons left, the Enfield microphone has had two different teams producing the tape. First, the Bob Williams, Keith Parker and Pete White group, and then the strange lot whose voices you hear now. A group of people who remain very faithful to the cause are the drivers, who take the tapes round to the people in their homes. These drivers, and to ladies on foot, have in many cases become personal friends of the listeners they visit, and have lent a helping hand where needed. Sid Hale has been with the organisation for many years, and he is responsible for delivering the tapes to the other drivers, as well as visiting three blind people. Pat's f Pat first asked Sid about his round. It's a very pleasant round. I've made a lot of friends in the few years that I've been working for the Enfield microphone. I call on Mr Parry, Mrs Mitchell, Mrs Constable, who in turn pass it on to Tom May, Mrs Jose, George Witchett, Wally Haslam, and I go up to uh, Mr Smith in Percival Road. He's our latest driver. He's making a good job of it too. Also, I have to call on a home, Parkfield House, at Hadley Wood. There's a lively bunch of young ladies up there, and I always enjoy their company. They're the drivers I have to call on, and of course I have my own listeners, Mrs. Burse, and Mr. Arnold, and Mr. Smith. Now, Mr. Smith is 91 this week, and I'm going to his reception on Saturday with my wife. Many happy returns to the day, Charles. And I hope to see you again next year and many years afterwards. Don't make me drunk Saturday, will you? I know you won't. <laughs> well, I know you do an awful lot of jobs for people as you go around, Zid, and you don't mention it at all. But is there anyone who chucks you out? Very few. I think Charles is going to chuck me out on Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. Our postal service, sending tapes to listeners who have their own machines, has been running for about two years, and we are very grateful to the post office for allowing us free postal facilities for our tapes. Two other people deserve a mention. Colin Hall, whose voice is never heard on the tape, but who is responsible for helping Patricia with the copying of the tapes, and Bernard Crow, who repairs the Enfield microphone machines when they break down. Bernard is probably known to many of you as he repairs the talking book machines for the library. I was asked by Pat Albert to join forces with the recording team on the production of this memorable edition. Unfortunately, working and holiday commitments prevented my being there on the actual night, and so a recorded contribution was the best I could offer. Perhaps I've been a rather erratic contributor to the news tape during the last few years by virtue of being one of the backroom boys, as it were. My main concern being the maintenance of the Nuffield talking book machines with the addition of the Enfield mic machines at a much later stage. 
strolling down memory lane more years ago than I care to precisely state, when I first came to Enfield, the talking book service was in the disc phase. That is, the books were recorded on many, many discs, which actually were a few years ahead of the long-playing records that we know today. I think there was even one copy of the Bible in the library, which ran to nearly 800 discs. There was a cunning device on the pickup for locating the precise start of the record, which the blind person could operate exactly every time. Also, of course, there were many service calls for needle changing, etc. The first cassette machines then appeared, and the cassette itself was a monster affair weighing many pounds, which often got damaged and out of alignment in the post. These ran on a very wide tape, which could accommodate up to 18 tracks. But, but this was a great step forward, since all but the longest books could be accommodated on one cassette. Now, of course, we have moved on to the Mark IV machine, with its postcard-sized cassette providing up to six tracks at two and a half hours per track, which is enough for a moderate-length book. Apart from the fiction library, many books have been produced for students in many languages and are now circulated by many countries throughout the world. It has given me great pleasure and satisfaction to have worked with the Talking Book Library through its many changing phases. It has gradually hoped to replace all the old adapted machines with the latest Mark IV machine, but with about 120 new applicants per week and nearly 50,000 machines in the field, you will understand that it will take some time. The service, too, is being extended to handicapped people as well as blind persons, and many of the service engineers, like myself, have offered our resources to the new organisation as they will be using identical machines and cassettes. One of the more exciting aspects of the service job is the visiting of blind persons in their own homes. I am always amazed at how well and cheerful and pleased they are to see me when I call. I always come away feeling spiritually serviced after chats which sometimes last for a very long time. There are many other things I could report on, but since the greatest crime in broadcasting is to overrun, this is Bernard Crow from backstage at the Enfield microphone, staying cheerio till next time. Well, Bernard's contribution brings our reminiscences to an end for this edition, so now over to Patricia with news. A Bush Hill Park man who was said to have traded in human misery was jailed for four years at Chelmsford Crown Court when he admitted assisting the entry of six illegal immigrants. The court was told by Mr Alan Green prosecuting that a single-engine plane ferrying the illegal immigrants from France to England flew into a trap. Police officers acting on a tip-off waited nearly two hours until the plane arrived at Audley End near Saffron Walden, Essex, he said. Then they arrested 35-year-old Peter James Shaw, described as a wholesaler of Village Road, Bush Hill Park, and 33-year-old Henrich Holt, a freelance pilot of Germany. Both men pleaded guilty to a charge of assisting the entry of five Indians and one Pakistani on June the 9th. Holt was jailed for 12 months, but Shaw, who was said by Mr Green to be part of a sophisticated gang, was sent to prison for four years. Judge Peter Greenwood told them, this type of offence, trading in human misery, is done for greed and, in my view, calls for severe punishment, if only to deter others. 
An Enfield man was rushed to hospital with both legs broken after an accident at the junction of Baker Street and Bell Road on Wednesday the 18th of September. Mr Stephen Robert Banya, aged 25, of 246 Baker Street, was hit by a van which then turned onto its side. He also suffered head injuries. A spokesman at Chase Farm Hospital described his condition as fairly satisfactory. The van driver, Mr Brian V. Goodman, aged 21, of 29 Willow Road, was also taken to hospital with a cut head, but he was not detained. Residents on the Suffolk estate at Enfield Highway, where council houses are being modernised, have been packing out the show house on the estate since it, since it opened on Monday, 9th of September. Despite the efforts of vandals, who have smashed windows and broken pipes in the show house at 11 Oldbury Road, residents have been able to see exactly how modern, modernisation will change their homes. More than 500 council houses are included in the £3 million council improvement scheme, which is due to be completed by September next year. Since the contractors moved onto the site in July, there has been criticism of the work that has been carried out and prote protest at the fact that the residents are given no choice in the matter or the houses are to be modernised. But on the other hand, residents have said that they are quite happy with the way the work has been done. There has been praise for the scheme itself and praise for the end product. Rain did not prevent more than 60 people gathering at Chase Green on Sunday afternoon 15th of September for the annual Battle of Britain Remembrance Service. At the service, which was conducted by the Reverend Michael Sherman, Vicar of St Luke's, flags representing the Royal British Legion, the Burma Star Association, the Royal Artillery Association and the Enfield branch of the Royal Air Forces Association were lowered in memory of those who died. A wreath was also laid by Air Commodore John McAlevey the president of the Enfield branch of the RAFA. Mrs Olive Whitworth, who will be known to quite a few listeners because she was the president of the Enfield Afternoon Blind Club, died recently at the age of 86. She was the founder and chairman of the Chase Non-Ferrous Metal Company in Jennington Road. She was associated with the die casting industry for more than 58 years. Her husband, the late Mr. Leslie Whitworth, founded Dyson and Company, the former Ponder's End firm of die casters, in 1915 in partnership with some friends. Mrs. Whitworth was closely associated with him in the business. In 1933, she decided to start her own business. She borrowed £150 and took over a blacksmith shop in Windmill Hill. The company moved to the present site after the war. A resident of Little Park Gardens since her marriage in 1915, Mrs. Whitworth was closely associated with St. Andrew's Church, where a memorial service conducted by the Reverend Peter Morgan was held. She was a member of the parochial church council. Work on the first stage of the long-awaited rebuilding of Chase Farm Hospital is now expected to be, com to be completed by the end of December, 18 months behind schedule. The delay, which has been caused mainly by shortages of labour and materials in the building industry, will mean that the final bill will be substantially more than the original figure of £1,695,069. 
The first stage will provide new staff accommodation, an operating suite, an x-ray department, an intensive care unit, an accident centre and a 90-bed maternity block. The contractors, Sir Lindsay Parkinson and Company, are also working on the second and third phases of the redevelopment, the building of a £1 million mental illness unit, which was originally due to be completed three months ago, and the construction of a 180-bed mentally handicapped unit. Mr Gordon Beverley, press officer for the North East Thames Regional Health Authority, who inherited the building contracts from the former North East Metropolitan Regional Hospital Board, said recently, The final bill will reflect the rising cost of labour and raw materials, but we cannot give an estimate of what it is likely to be because prices are still fluctuating. Every contract had, a, had an inbuilt inflationary clause and the final figure was subject to the extra costs which would have to be added to the bill. A 13-year-old Enfield boy di- who died after falling from a 50-foot oak tree in Ballsmore Lane was afraid of heights. It was stated at St Pancras Coroner's Court recently. A verdict of accidental death was recorded at the inquest on Christopher Pierce of Bridgend Road, Bullsmore, who died at Whittington Hospital on September 9th, the day after the fall. The boy's father, Mr John Pierce, told the court it was the first time he had climbed a tree. He was afraid of heights. A police helicopter hovered over Ponder's End on Friday the 13th of September as part of a big manhunt following a wages snatch. A lone raider, possibly armed, got away with £350 from outside the premises of Chubb Alarms, the security firm near the corner of Southbury Road and High Street. Police swooped on the area as soon as the alarm was raised, but the man had disappeared. They also interviewed shoppers and shopkeepers in the area in a search for witnesses. The raid happened at 10.30 in the morning as Mr M Ford, a Chubb employee, was bringing the wages to the factory. He parked in the factory forecourt, took a leather-bound box from his car and then felt something being pushed in his back. A man demanded the money, which he handed over, and the raider fled. No description of the man has been issued. Enfield residents are being urged to join forces in the fight for improved local bus services. The call comes from Mr Gordon Dixon, the Enfield and Haringey representative on the London Transport Passengers Committee, the service's public watchdog. At a meeting recently, the, uh, meeting, the committee will receive a report on services in Enfield, including suggested improvements. But Mr Dixon told the Gazette that the best way to get action was for individual residents and groups to write to the committee to show the strength of local feeling. The report from the General Purposes Subcommittee says that further information is being gathered in support of a call from the Federation of Enfield Residents and Allied Associations that the 135 route should be extended along Carter Hatch Lane to form an east-west link between the Beefeater, formerly the Halfway House, and the Hartford Road. Anyone who has observations on the local bus service should write to the committee, Middlesex Guild Hall, Parliament Square, London SW1. While still on the subject of queries on transport services, a night nurse returning home from duty at Highlands Hospital had to wait nearly two hours on Monday the 16th of September for a W9 Toytown bus. Miss E.M. Hart, who campaigned for a bus link between Enfield and the hospital, 
said the buses were supposed to run every 20 minutes, but she had to wait from 7.45am until 9.40am before a bus came. The situation, she, she said, was impossible for staff and visitors, and the service had gradually deteriorated over the past month. A spokesman for London Transport said that uh, that Monday morning only one of the three buses supposed to be on the route was running due to mechanical defects. He agreed the service had been affected in recent weeks due to the delay in the delivery of spare parts and a shortage of engineering staff. The manager at the Ponders End bus garage said that the minibuses seem to have mechanical troubles all the time. The conversion of Clayhill House into a halfway house in the rehabilitation process for the mentally ill is likely to cost nearly 150000 It was stated at a meeting of the Borough Council's Social Services Committee. The scheme, which was put back in April because of cuts in the capital building programme, could also involve the demolition of Clayhill House Lodge, a building listed as being of special architectural merit. It is intended to provide 25 places at Clayhill House for long-stay, mentally ill people who no longer need to be kept in hospital. The borough architect, Mr Dowell, said the lodge was a listed building which the council had an obligation to maintain, but it is in such a state of dilapidation and the cost of repairs and restoration would be so high that it would not be worthwhile, he said, the, its walls are only four and a half inches thick. It just is not habitable. An attempt was made to make it habitable some years ago, but it was found to be too expensive, he added. The Enfield Borough Show might be held annually in future. The Borough Council's Civic Amenities Committee are currently looking into this possibility. The committee asked recently for a report to be prepared for discussion for the next meeting of the Enfield Show Subcommittee. It is envisaged that if the subcommittee recommend an annual show, and this is ratified by the full committee at their next meeting on October the 14th, there might still be time to organise a show for next year. A dairy company were fined a total of £100 and ordered to pay £30 costs at Tottenham Magistrates Court for selling short-weight cakes at their shop in Bramley Road, Oakwood. The court was told that the short-weight cakes were found by Mr Miroff, a senior trading standard officer for the borough, when he made a routine visit to the shop which is run by the Express Dairy Company. Mr Miroff weighed 11 Irish fruit cakes and cherry cake loaves and 9 cherry fruit cakes which had been made and pre-packed by Gatto Limited of Dublin. All 20 were found to be less than the stated weight and five of them, one fruit and cherry cake and four cherry and four fruit cakes were inspected and weighed again. The manageress told Mr Miroff that the cakes had been in the shop for several months and they had not been checked or weighed while they were there. Mr Miroff was unable to see any invoices relating to the supply of the cakes either at the shop or later at the company's offices. A scathing attack on the condition of the kitchens at North Middlesex Hospital Edmonton has been made by one of the hospital's trade union leaders. If the public only knew about the state of the kitchens, it would deter them from sending their relations to the hospital, as they would be afraid of food poisoning, he claimed. In an interview, Mr Bill Marsden, branch chairman of the Confederation of Health Service Employees at North Middlesex, protested, 
One, that the kitchen has deteriorated to such an extent that the staff are in danger of injury. Two, that grease and condensation dripping from the kitchen roof can fall on into the food. Three, that the staff changing rooms are a dirty, filthy pigsty with no proper toilet, showers or restrooms. And four, that cockroaches and mice have been found in disused ovens. Mr Marsden insists that the kitchens where more than 1,300 meals are prepared for patients and doctors each day must be renovated. When is the work going to be done, he asks. Are they going to wait for an outbreak of food poisoning or something like typhoid? Mr Tony Smith, acting hospital secretary at North Middlesex, said that he could not comment in detail but might wish to do so after seeing Mr Marsden's statement. He explained, the Area Health Authority is very much aware of the need to improve the catering facilities at the hospital and has arranged advisory visits by the Public Health Department during the last year. A member of the Area Health Authority has personally visited the, visited the kitchens in the last few weeks. A government announcement has brought new hope to about 50 families who booked holidays with the ill-fated Courtline Company through an Enfield firm of travel agents. The Secretary for Trade, Mr Peter Shaw, has said that all the money paid for holidays that were never taken will be refunded in full from an interest-free loan which the government will make to the industry. The news has been greeted with elation by Mr Alfred Rowe, Managing Director of Victor Travel of Enfield Town. He said, I am absolutely delighted that the negotiations carried out by the industry have borne fruit. The Federation of Enfield Residents and Allied Associations feel they are being ignored by a Borough Council committee. Members agreed at the Ferro meeting on Monday the 16th of September to write a letter of protest to the town clerk, Mr Wilfred Day. They are angry because the council's Road Safety Advisory Committee have failed to consider five items referred to them by Ferro. A meeting of the committee, which should also have been held on the same night, was cancelled because there was not enough business on the agenda. Ferro chairman, Mr Cyril Thompson, said, we have referred five items to them yet they have not met because there is not enough business for them on the agenda. It seems they are ignoring us. Members of the Borough Council's Town Planning Committee were shocked to hear that Barclays Blank Bank building at 20 The Town is not to be protected from future demolition. Mr Anthony Crosland, Secretary of State for the Environment, has refused to confirm a building preservation notice served by the Borough Council because he does not regard the building as being of sufficient merit. Alderman Ron St John protested Barclays Bank is a superb example of the time it was built. God forbid that it should go. Councillor John Bowyer, chairman of the committee, agreed with Alderman St John, but pointed out that at present there was no suggestion that the building would be demolished. The notices had originally been served when the bank had applied for planning permission to erect illuminated signs on the outside of the building. Since then, the bank have decided instead to put up non-illuminated signs over which the council have no planning control. Enfield residents are being asked to move over and make room for families from overcrowded inner London. The call comes from a government working party who have just completed a survey of the housing land available in the suburbs. In a report to Mr Reg Friesen, the Minister of Housing and Construction, they attacked the outer London boroughs for dragging their feet in the race to house the 130,000 families who are technically homeless in the capital. 
They urge a big speed up in the housing building program, including the release of more marginal areas of Greenbelt land and building on allotments and school playing fields which will be relocated in the Greenbelt. The Greater London Council should be given a bigger share of future developments, they say. Councils that are reluctant to use open land for housing were given a clear warning by Mr Gerald Kaufman, Chairman of the Working Party and Under Secretary of State at the Department of the Environment. He said at a press conference, if they don't get on and do the job themselves, the GLC or one of the inner London boroughs will take over the land and do the job for them. Following the report, Mr Friesen has written to the leaders of all London boroughs and the GLC seeking a rapid improvement in house building. The Action Group's report was discussed at a recent meeting of the Borough Council's Town Planning Committee. Council officers were asked to carry out an investigation of any possible housing land in the borough. John Charles William Castleman, who is charged with the murder of his wife, a former Enfield shop manageress, was remanded on bail in his own recognizance of £10,000 and sureties totalling £2,250 until October the 9th at Chestnut Magistrates Court a few weeks ago. A condition of bail was that Castleman, a 51-year-old administrative assistant, should reside with one of the sureties in Mill Hill and should report to Mill Hill Police Station three times a week. Listeners may be interested in a venture whereby they can get to concerts at the Royal Festival Hall using a special coach service from Enfield direct to the South Bank. If you are free on Tuesday evening, the 19th of November 1974, the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Walter Weller, will play Vlatava by Smetana, as well as Bartok's Piano Concerto No. 2 and Vorjak's Symphony No. 8. Listeners may get further details from the Arts and Entertainments Office, Central Library, Cecil Road, Enfield, Middlesex, or they can telephone 01366224. I'll just repeat that. The Arts and Entertainments Office, Central Library, Cecil Road, Enfield, Middlesex, or telephone 01366224. Double four. And locally, the Enfield Arts and Entertainments Department are presenting a variety spectacular at Edmonton Town Hall, Knights Lane, Edmonton N9, on Thursday the 31st of October at 8pm. This is a superb evening's entertainment with well-known names from the variety club circuit. Top of the bill will be the enormously successful Ruby Murray, who is supported by a number of first-class acts. Tickets are available from the main box office at Enfield Central Library or by applying personally to all borough libraries. Well, that just about wraps up this, the 300th edition of the Enfield Microphone. So Old Father Time says it's time to say goodbye from... Dennis. And me, Peter.
Please remember to switch off your machine 